Welcome to Keeping Your Together in a Stressed World with Michelle Post and Scott Grossberg. Each week, we explore down and dirty ways to stop awfulizing, catastrophizing, going down the rabbit hole, and moving through all the craziness that is happening right now. We're here to create a community of like-minded people as we give you tips, tricks, and techniques for keeping sane in an unhinged world. And now, here are your hosts, Michelle Post and Scott Grossberg. Hey, everybody. This is Scott Grossberg, one of your co-hosts for the podcast, Keeping Your Shit Together in a Stressed World. And I'm here with my co-host, Michelle Post. Hello, Michelle. Hi, Scott. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our secret guest. <laughs> he'll he'll be on in a minute you can uh-huh. introduce him wait wait for it wait for I it can't leave, wait, the, I can't wait. leave the tease there um so let's start the show uh, yes. with, with a discussion of two things first i want to thank everybody who reached out to me uh during the magic castle run Yay. that i just had it was wonderful uh it flew by and it uh it, it was i think this this run was better than last year's run so we'll see where it goes. It was very fascinating. I've got to share this because I uh, I think some people will be fascinated by this. Celebrities obviously go to the Magic Castle. It's a private club in Hollywood, for those who don't know. And we have uh, uh, had some, some pretty illustrious prior presidents of the organization, Cary Grant, among others. Mm. Uh, Neil Patrick Harris was just recently president. And some fairly big known celebrities like Johnny Carson, Orson Welles, things like that. Who are they? Just kidding. Yeah, who are they? Uh, So people come and they hang out there because they know photographs aren't allowed. You're not supposed to ask for autographs. It's kind of a safe haven. Uh, Notwithstanding that uh, Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez just came to the castle and the paparazzi actually tried to sneak in (gasps) at past the security guards wow it was just crazy there they didn't so, know the secret thing to open they, the, they didn't know the secret the thing. secret so, wall the, the, i gotta tell you what's <laughs> fa- for the first time uh i've had this happen you know celebrities will show up you'll do your show and you look out and you see faces in the audience and you know who they are right yes and i happened to walk out from my dressing room and one of these celebrities was standing there with his little entourage and I went up and I was going to introduce myself uh-huh. and use his name, right? That's like, uh-huh. hello, so-and-so. I'm Scott. Thanks for coming to my show. I saw you sitting there and clapping, blah, blah, blah. And he cut me off and, and gave me a different name. He said, oh. hi, I'm so-and-so. What a joke. <laughs> yeah. And it was like, <laughs> it, it was very interesting that even in that type of setting, uh, he felt the need to, to use just use a pseudonym. Name. Um, now I've, I've seen, I've seen celebrities there do other things. Um, I actually, <laughs> I, I, Muhammad Ali was a member. I got to, uh, oh. be around Muhammad Ali, probably one of the large, other than Shaquille O'Neal, Muhammad Ali was huge. Yeah. I mean, this yeah, is just yeah. a huge man. Um, he would come to the castle with four bodyguards because wow. pe- people were constantly going up trying to hit him because oh, wow. that was his fear, not at the castle, of course. Wow. Um, but his fear was people would come up. And so their job was to do that. So thank you for everybody who reached mm-hmm. out during the run of the show. I appreciate that. And obviously the power is up. Everything's fine here, at least in my little corner of California. Yay. And uh, very interesting uh, watching the progression of not only the Hillary, the storm, but the reactions of different people in a crisis that um, I know for a fact, watching some of the news broadcasts, not all of them, but some of the news broadcasts, because I, I used to see this, I lived in a destination uh, town where there was a lot of snow periodically, and I we would watch the news trucks plant themselves in the middle middle of the street and block traffic and then report on the snow blocking traffic, but it was actually the news crew that did it. So they created news. It was very interesting watching some of the news accounts that I knew were not quite accurate. Um, On the other hand, it's also been interesting, right? This is the first time I think in what 80 some odd years that at least my town has had a tropical storm slash hurricane slash earthquake warning slash 
twister anti-m let's go to oz warning kind of thing and it's been very interesting watching people's reactions post storm saying what was the big deal and and yet as somebody who helps public agencies train for crisis and train for emergencies right if if they had not erred on the side of caution that would have been a, and and bad things worse things had happened there's certainly some bad things happening but um but had worse things happened then they would have been criticized so it's one of those no good deed goes unpunished situations uh-huh. and so one of the things i'm asking listeners to do is like how about we take a step back and do the Brene Brown concept of everybody's doing the best they can. Uh, uh, and, and we're, we're trying to protect you from yourself. <laughs> um, and so to the, you know, if you wake up today and the sun is shining here in California, in Southern California, that doesn't mean that there still aren't down power poles. There still isn't wet, wet ground that will cause subsidence. There still aren't, you know, um, trees and power poles that the ground is so saturated they're going to they're going to fall over and so everybody's checking it right, and I know right. there are schools today that closed suddenly and parents are freaking out over it um, it's like you know what deal with it yeah oh, there, there's my know, little it's, it's happening little everywhere thing. right yeah like just our it's not long ago that the Miami fire we were talking about I'm oh, sorry the Maui fires and the recovery process there. And that's a long recovery process. And having gone to New Orleans multiple times this week, that is still an area that is in recovery from Katrina. I mean, recovery it, it, absolutely. takes so long. Puerto Rico, after two years ago or three years ago, having a major storm. You know, we, we, we went to New Orleans um, post-Katrina and did something that I didn't think we would ever do in New Orleans because we've been there so often as you have. And that is we took a city tour, but it was oh. not a city tour. It was a specific tour mm-hmm. of post-Katrina. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I was shocked to see the devastation. Yeah, it's still, it still exists. Very there. And, very then, much there. And, and then talking to folks, you know, I, I remember one of the waitresses uh, that we had, wait staff, I guess I should say, uh, who was there at one of the restaurants we were at, and she was explaining the impact that it's still having on her family, mm-hmm. that they're still in recovery. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and this is this is a traumatic life event, folks. Mm-hmm. It is. It is. Cut them, a little, cut them a little slack. <laughs> so a totally different note, because, you know, I like to give my tips and tricks, right? Totally different note, totally different scenario. Quick tip for those of you that have boys who are going into middle school or high school and you're struggling with opening the conversation about their body changes, I highly recommend this book by Dr. Kara Natterson, a New York bestselling um, author and pediatrician. It's called Guy Stuff, the Body Book for Boys. It's so well done. And we'll really, you know, and it's bite-sized bits of information to help you start a dialogue, you know, with your father or your mother or whoever is walking you through understanding these life changes from an actual place instead of playground chatter amongst your friends slash porno. (laughs) You you know, it's funny that you say this because I'm thinking back to whatever education I might have gotten as a kid. And I believe uh-huh. other than, I guess you're calling it porno, but other than Playboy magazine, uh, which, yes, which I those. found, right? Yes. Other than that, I believe it was fifth or sixth grade. Mm-hmm. They made us all attend sex education. Yes. And, the, and they separated the boys from the girls. Yes. And I believe they showed us I'm trying to remember. I believe it was a silhouette of an erection. Wow. And it was like. Uh, you didn't see actual pictures, just a silhouette? No, 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 no. That, okay. I, I'm that old. Thanks, we didn't, do it, we didn't do it that way back <laughs> then. Um, and I, just trying to think if maybe it wasn't even it wasn't even fourth grade. I don't know. Because it was just, just I just remember yeah. as I'm talking to you right now, it's like wait, nobody ever told me about that. Right. 
I mean, nowadays in high school or sometimes junior high school, they'll have an elective called health and you'll learn sex ed as part of that. Maybe you'll have an introductory thing in elementary school, but with all the hormones or sunshine or whatever's happening with human beings, um, people are hitting puberty at a younger and younger age, you know, sometimes nine, sometimes 10, sometimes 11. And we're not having these conversations with them until they're much older. And it's, it's better for, you know, I had a conversation with a parent recently, like things happen out of order. You, You know, it's not always the voice change and the body hair that happen before the wet dreams or the erections happen. Sometimes there's kids bodies are changing and they're not understanding what's going on or periods or menstruation begins long before you see the body change. So don't assume that just because you haven't had these major body changes that they're not going through it. You really do want to talk to your kids earlier, not later, even if they go, ew, this is gross. You do what? You put your tongue away. (laughs) It doesn't matter. They need to know, right? They need, they need to know what's happening with their bodies so they can help themselves adapt and not feel ashamed. Good tip. Good tip. Yeah. All right. I I'm excited about today's show and (laughs) and I know I'm, I know I'm cutting off our discussion a little early, but I think we're going to have a full show today. Let's do it. All right. It's over to you. All right. Well, I have the privilege and honor of introducing a very dear friend of mine from undergrad at UCLA who went on to be a, an amazing psychologist. So Dr. Nabil El-Ghori is with us today. We call him Dr. Nabil. So you can feel free to say that. And he's here to talk to us about living with less stress and learning how to decompress. But a little background about him. He has his PhD and is a psychologist and principal at executive therapy and consulting. He has 13 years experience as an association executive, including four years as a CEO of a $6 million association. He's a licensed uh, clinical psychologist who can see patients in over 38 states via telehealth in the United States. He's available for individual counseling, for mental health concerns, and is a global speaker who has uh, spoken to a number of businesses and associations on mental health topics like stress and wellness, burnout, imposter experience, and creating a culture of well-being, like totally in line with our keeping your shit together audience, right? And uh, for those of you that want to contact him after you hear him, I know you'll fall in love with him like I love him. He can be reached at uh, www.executivetherapy.solutions or Nabil, N-A-B-I-L, at executivetherapy.solutions. So welcome, Nabil. Thank you. Thank you very much. So excited to have you. It's a privilege to be here. (laughs) So Dr. Nabil, um, take it away. Tell us what you think some of the most important pieces are in living with stress and learning to decompress. You know, so I think the... My story begins really with the pandemic three years ago, right? Wow. How March 2020, the you know, the world turned upside down. <laughs> and things that I used to like to do to sort of manage my stress, travel around the world, go out to eat, uh, see friends, all that changed. At the time I was living in San Diego and San Diego had really strong social distancing rules at the time. And so it was a really dramatic shift. Also, I see myself as a, as a extrovert. So seeing people was a big part of my job as a, as a CEO. Um, And so really coming out of that, thinking how my stress level went up, I gained weight the first few years and uh, or the first few months, I should say, the first few months, I gained weight. And then I really paused and I thought, okay, I need to really start to take care of myself. Mm-hmm. And that's when I started really implementing strategies for decompressing at the end, at, you know, sort of preparing myself, you know, thinking about thinking about the world as, you know, your dive into work. So what mm-hmm. can you do before you dive into work? Mm-hmm. What can you do while you're deep at work? 
and what can you do at the end of the workday? So I started using these strategies to, to help me manage my stress. Um, and frankly, they were helpful in the, uh, in the storm because I happened to be in San Diego this weekend again. And I was, you know, I was helping a friend um, prep her house in Point Loma, a beautiful neighborhood overlooking the San Diego Bay. And half the, you know, I kept on saying, you know, do what you need to do to make, to make your anxiety lower. So if we need to move everything, let's do that. And if, and if, if you need to go be with your parents up, up in North County, San Diego, do that, do what makes, do what helps you with your anxiety, with, with your stress. So, um, so I'm, I'm curious, I, I've got to ask, I've got to ask real quick because of what you're just saying, are you a proponent of acknowledging, naming, being at one with the anxiety, stepping into it and, um, I get it, rather than deflecting it and deferring it and throwing it away. A, a little of both, but you know, the, the evidence-based practice for anxiety is exposure therapy, right? It, it's, it is, if you are afraid of horses, the way you get over your fear of horses is to approach horses. <laughs> and so it's always stepping out of your comfort zone. So part of it is I lean into the anxiety. You know, but there are certain times where, you know, you have to kind of acknowledge and do what you need to do to survive, right? So, you know, um, like, you know, my example for me is I get nervous flying and I didn't realize how nervous, like how nervous I get until there's disruptions to my routine. Yeah. So my routine is I go to the airport super early. Oh. I'm always nervous about the airport because my last name, I'm Arabic background mm -hmm. and my name is very clearly arabic uh and muslim if we're going to be specific and so security is always a concern to me and You're so i randomly pulled out of line very often i you know more often than not <laughs> yes. and so so my goal is get there early if anything happens i have time like they, they wow. can pull me aside for 15 minutes and it's not going to stress me out uh and it's only when i travel with someone i traveled with someone who has the exact opposite strategy, like get to the gate the last second. Yes, that's me. Before the flight. Like when I traveled with that person, I was like, oh, I have built my life constructing a, a process that keeps my anxiety low. Right, right. And when I see, when I, when I change it, I was like, oh, this is how I would feel if I didn't do this. This right. is so, like my wife and I, I mean, Michelle knows this, but it's yes. like, I'm, I'm, you know, Dr. Nabil, I'm like you. I'm I'm the guy that says, get me to the airport. They say they'll be there two hours ahead of time for an international flight. Okay, then I need to get there three, three. two and a half, three hours ahead of time. <laughs> exactly. Just just because it helps my anxiety. My wife walk maybe, onto the plane. May walk onto the plane. And, yeah, yeah. Never and, her goal is to never stop. Like go through yeah. security and keep walking but on wait. I also have anxiety, but it's claustrophobia about being on the plane. And I didn't discover it until I was traveling with somebody who is like the two of you. My partner, Brian, likes to be there ahead of time. And so my anxiety would be if I had my routine down, I got to the airport just in time to get through TSA, just in time to get to the plane, just in time to walk on the plane, I wouldn't have any freak out about being on the plane. But now all of a sudden, I've got two hours to decompress before the plane, and I'm freaking out on the plane. So, so I, I got the absolute opposite. I, I got to tell you, <laughs> Michelle, it was very interesting. We talked about the Magic Castle. I have discovered the stressor in my life is, and and I'm exactly opposite of you, Doctor Nabil. It, it's while you're an extrovert, I want you to imagine an entertainer who's actually very shy and introverted in the real world. <laughs> and and because of that, I. Given enough time to think about the show, I get anxious versus <laughs> versus if you just came to me and said, Scott, go go do go a show for on. a thousand yeah. people and walk on. Yeah. There's no stage fright. Yep. That's right. That's me. Yep. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think fascinating. The thing that I think about is there are things you could do kind of long-term to, to reduce your anxiety and sort of your stress. And then there are things you could do in the moment to reduce your stress. Yeah. Um, you know, the thing that I, 
So the the lesson that I learned in the pandemic is, you know, I always talk about mindfulness, right? And we we all know mindfulness as a, such an important technique. Uh, I I heard someone say this at a workshop, and I have been stealing it. I stole it ever since because I love this metaphor. Mindfulness is exercise for your brain. You know, we don't it, we don't think about it like that, but it really is incredibly powerful to think about how taking some time to be present and to let your thoughts go is actually helping and strengthening your brain. So what I discovered in the pandemic, I, I, I have, a, I struggle with organized mindfulness, meditation kind of exercises, but what I discovered is making my morning coffee became my mindfulness routine. So my Keurig broke in the pandemic <laughs> and <laughs> and you know, I'm in, I'm, in, I'm in California, right? So it's not the Keurig is not good for the for the environment anyway. So I thought, let me start <laughs> making pour over coffees, right? Uh -huh. And and I started getting really into it. Like I would grind the coffee. You know, I, it, it's best in the winter when it's the house is dark, and all I have is the kitchen, the light in the kitchen, and I am grinding the coffee beans in the morning. I smell the coffee. And then I discovered what temperature I like my coffee. I like it 195, not boiling. <laughs> and, and I listen to the water drip into my Yeti cup. And then, you know. Oh, you've, you've got your own personal tea ceremony going on. Yes, yes. I, I, exactly. And, and it is, it's about five minutes. And that is my mindfulness exercise for the for the morning. And it sort of centers me and gets me grounded and ready for the ready for the day's activities. Yeah. And when I don't do that, so when I'm in a hotel right now, I'm at my parents' house and I, uh, I they don't have a coffee grinder and I don't want it and I don't want to go to the F like, traveling with coffee is another issue. Yes. So note to, yes. note to note to travelers, try not to fly with coffee because that's a notorious place for hiding drugs. Oh. So I didn't know that. Oh. Coffee, coffee is disguises smells, right? That's why at, oh. at, perfume, oh. at perfume stores, they have uh, coffee. So you can, uh, after you smell a, a, a perfume, you smell some coffee, it neutralizes oh. your, your It's a your palate cleanser, but for your yeah. nose. Okay. And so it hides, it hides odors. And oh. so uh, it is a pretty notorious. Um, oh. So like when I travel, uh, I actually am going to buy a, a, a pound of coffee at my favorite coffee places out here. I yes. take it out of the bag. I take it out of my, my backpack and put it outside so they see it. <laughs> and if they're going to take anything, they take just that. Makes sense. But, um, but that, that I so the neat thing also is I built it into my routine. Mm -hmm. So it's just part of what I do on a daily basis. And I, I don't even think about it anymore. I just, I just go ahead and do that every morning. And it really is a wonderful way to start the day. And you can so do how, this. How important do you think mindfulness becoming muscle memory is? I think it's critical. I, I, I think it's critical because you can't, if you have never, if you haven't gone to the gym in three years, you can't go to the gym, do one set of bicep curls and say, where's my muscle? <laughs> right? You can't do that. You have it is after routine use mm -hmm. and routine practice that you you start seeing some muscles. So the same is true for mindfulness. Doing it once is helpful in that moment, but doing it uh, daily for several weeks, for several months, that's when you create an amazing muscle that helps you to calm your body down. And I think that is, I think that's where the power of mindfulness comes. I agree. When I learned diaphragmatic breathing for public speaking fear, mm -hmm. right? And I still deal with public speaking fear, but when I learned diaphragmatic breathing, it would take me a long time to calm the pounding in my throat down. But now I've done it so long for so many years, it doesn't take long at all. It's right. just like maybe 10 breaths, 10 breaths. And my body's like, oh, oh yeah, relaxation response. We're cool. Yeah. And my, right. my muscle example, memory, my example for folks who are resistant to mindfulness, uh, you know, I think about basketball players who at the free throw line. 
okay? Especially when you are facing the opposing team and they're doing this behind, there's noise, there's screaming. Uh They have basically a ritual. They, each one of them bounce the ball a certain number of times in each hand and then take their shot. In, In the middle of all that is a deep breath. Yeah. They have done that thousands of times. Yeah. So that they can calm themselves down for that one shot. Yeah. Now they have muscle memory and right. that's from literally thousands of F, thousands of um, practice attempts. What movie so was that, it? That kind of tool can be so powerful for folks. What movie was it where the baseball player would say, clear the mechanism, and then you'd see it in the movie and the whole like crowd and hecklers would all disappear and he could pitch. But that was the clearest explanation I had of what it feels like when you've got your muscle memory. Like if you don't know what it feels like as a new person to this kind of stuff, that it's, was a, it's a Kevin Costner in uh, for the love of the game. For the love of the game. That's it. Clear the mechanism. So that's a great clip if you can find it on YouTube to help you see mm-hmm. if you're doing mindfulness right and body memory right. That's kind of what what it starts to feel like. It just, it clouds everything out and you focus. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. So in the moment and then long-term. Yeah. Then I, you know, I also think about what do you focus on? What, like, think about what you focus on. What you focus on is what you're going to get. And so, uh, Speaking of basketball, there's a great clip you might have seen. It went viral a couple of years ago. A UCLA player, uh, I think it was a center, like a, a player who's never the one in charge of, of handling the ball, had the ball in the middle of the court. He passed it and it he lost possession. Okay. And, and the other team scored really quickly. And he put his his head down. And his teammate, a, a, a guard, because he was short, this guy he lifted his head up and then just walked away. And I thought that is so powerful of a statement. And he's saying, focus on what you want, lift your head up, focus on what you want. And, you know, so there's a couple of things you, you get what you focus on, right? So if he was, if his head was down, he was not going to play well immediately. But then two, the power of the team, of your social support, of your squad. And, that is so, so powerful. Um, in the pandemic, I have, my squad was uh, my class from the Diversity Executive Leadership Program. It's a program for association executives and I was in the 2016 cohort. And so we ended up having a, a group Zoom call on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, uh, 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern time, weekly the first yeah. for 2020. And once we started doing that, I blocked that time on my calendar and I told my team, I am not having any meetings from three to 5 p.m. on Wednesdays. Like if you want me on Wednesdays, get me before 3 p.m. And I went religiously to this group because it was a time to see people, people I love. We would laugh, we would cry. And it was very intentional. I think there... I, there are other pieces of, of being of decompressing and, and being handling stress. And I think intentionality is a big one. Yeah. And that that's that that weekly meeting really made a big difference in feeling connected with others as well as um supporting my friends and them supporting me. Yeah, I'm gonna add something here, and we've talked about it on the show before, but it goes along with you and I needing to be at the airport early for a <laughs> comfort level. Um, in light of what you just said, I want to remind people, one of my standard rules of life is that I manifest my intention through my calendar. So my mastermind groups, my, you know, this show all on my calendar and it's marked out as busy. So nothing else happens. And I've, I've long said, if you're not on my calendar, you don't exist to me. Um, (laughs) Even my family knows to put things on my calendar. And, and, and it's, it's literally, it's my comfort. It's my organization. It brings structure to everything. And I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying, Dr. Nabil, because it's, it's literally for those of us who are recovering control freaks, 
um <laughs> you know it it's it's a very safe and sane way of dealing with the everyday stressors of life i i fully endorse a, a strong calendar use uh, <laughs> as someone who i would say not a control freak more on the distractible side inattentive side that if it's not on my calendar i don't do it and not only that i need to plan like time that. to work on it so you can put a deadline so if i know there's a deadline next week i need time to i need to schedule time to work on it a week two weeks three weeks in advance but at the minimum the, the deadline needs to be on there and frankly i want everything so i want the links the emails so for this for this uh this uh podcast uh i emailed michelle for the for the link for the zoom link when she sent it to me i pasted it into yeah. the calendar appointment so yes. that way it was right there one click and i'm on here so i've got to yes. know i've got to know do you do what i do and sometimes i will talk about my mindfulness practice uh sometimes i take my calendar i happen to use google calendar you can use whatever you want i use google calendar i put it on the month of you and sometimes I just sit and look at it. I don't do anything. I just, I look at the calendar and it's very comforting to me. I go over it. It's, I wouldn't call it ruminating, but it's a very mindful present. This is what's coming. This is what has happened. This is where I am. You know, my to-dos are on it. There's, there's all kinds of ways you can use your calendar. It's just very comforting for me to look at the calendar and say, this is life. I hadn't thought of that, but I think that's a great way of of thinking about uh, about your time and kind of, and where it's going. You can reflect on that. Uh, you could also reflect on what you need to do. I think. So I, what I, what, do, what do you do? And I know Michelle and I've chatted about this because we've talked about it. it's kind of the whole point of today's show. So you're a structure person. Mm -hmm. What do you do when shit happens, though? Yeah, you know, <laughs> I'll tell you. That's interesting. So I, so when the pan, so before the pandemic, let's step back in 2018, I was hired to be the executive director of an association. In fact, one that Michelle knows very well. Yeah. And so the first two years, 18 and 19, I was, let's say green as a, as a CEO. And so I was a little bit cautious. I would check in with folks and I would uh, do, you know, I was, I was very, I, I was very cautious about what I did. I was thoughtful, took time, got feedback. Okay. In February of 2020, February 25th, I got news of the pandemic hitting hard. So mm -hmm. a consultant of mine told me coronavirus back then it wasn't called COVID-19 coronavirus right. is coming. It's going to come hard. Be ready for it. That's all she told me. Wow. And I took that and ran. So the next day I told my team, get ready for remote work, buy all the computers we need, test everyone, uh, get everything ready. What I discovered was when shit happened, I just acted and I didn't, I didn't uh, overthink it. I did what needed yeah. to be done. Beautiful. And you know, I also, I went to the grocery store and bought my food, my panic buying, but I did mine on February 26th. Rice was already sold out at the Asian store. So that was a warning sign to me because I'm like, oh, <laughs> even the brown rice is sold out at, at, at Ranch 99? Oh, this is serious. Yeah. So I got my rice at the Arab store where the Arabs hadn't heard yet <laughs> that the pandemic was coming. But, you know, the Chinese and the, and the Koreans, they had the, the students at UCSD, they all knew and they were prepared. OK, so so you're talking about preparing for shit yeah. happening. Well, what uh, happens when we who like to plan, who like structure, <laughs> who find comfort in that when it literally comes from the outside and it disrupts? What what do they call it? An inconvenient truth? What happens when life happens and kicks you in the gut? How do you recommend the handling the stress of the unpredictable? Uh, I my 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 deputy CEO and I used to talk about a uh, an act. Well, 
a contestant on Project Runway. Oh yeah. Uh, season two it was Zulima. If you if you remember that that contestant, she was in a she was paired with someone else with uh, Kara, I think, and Kara was having a meltdown. And Zulima said, "I don't care if you cry and cut, but you're going to cry and cut." So, <laughs> you know, and and I would say it a little nicer, <laughs> but the idea is you can have care feelings, have your feelings, feelings. Have, your feelings. Uh -huh. have your feelings, but then you still got shit to do. Do yeah. that, and and depending on the circumstances, you know. But in there, there was a time circumstance, you know, for for the pandemic with my company. I had to figure out what to do constantly. How do I manage the team? How do I keep the team supportive? And a little bit of what I did was I kind of put that down for myself to portray strength for my team. And so when I was, um, so that first year, I actually made a video for my team every day. Like, and it was, it, it replicated what I would do when in person, which is I would walk around the building and talk to, I would say hello to every person who worked for me. And just sometimes it was just a hello. What'd you watch on Netflix last night? Uh, oh, how was your kids graduate? How was your kid's soccer game? You know, I would walk around and, and see everyone. They would get FaceTime with me. And that was a big part of my in-person leadership style. And so when we were remote, I was concerned about not having that. So I at least wanted everyone to have a visual of me. And so I made these videos. And at the beginning, it was very much keep, you know, hope, you know, keep hope alive kind of uh, conversations. And then it evolved to recognizing my team and sort of just funny stories, humor. When when George Floyd happened, it became social justice and leadership con leadership content. But I, you know, I, I did to a certain extent put, you know, put my feelings aside for a moment to, to lead my team. And then for myself, that's when I had my, my squad and I would share my fears and my, my worries and my panics at that point. So you, so you, and I say this to you as a psychologist, right? Yeah. Not a leader, as a psychologist, you do allow yourself safe space and time, a sacred carve out for, for lack of a better way to, to put it, to have a pity party for yourself. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. I mean, you're not, you're not, you're not just saying go through life, fake it until you make it and put blinders on. You're saying no, I... it's okay to, to take a step back, sit with your loss, your failure, your hurt, your anger, whatever it is. Yeah. And then get on with it. Yes, I 100%. I mean, Michelle and I have talked about grief a lot. You know, mm -hmm. uh, I I find that I do better when I'm kind of busy. And and so I would like, so when, when my mom died 23 years ago, uh, I would cry in the car on the way to the hospital where I was working. And I would listen to two songs from Rent, the soundtrack. I would listen to two songs. They would make me cry. And then I would listen to a, a third song. I would not, I sort of would fast forward to get to the songs, right? Mm -hmm. And then I would listen to a song that lifted my spirits. And then I wouldn't cry for the rest of the workday. Yeah. So I kind of got it out. And it, mm -hmm. and I did that for, for, for a few months. I did that. Mm -hmm. And and I noticed it, I didn't need to do it in the afternoon. If I listened to those songs after work, it didn't have the same impact. Mm -hmm. But in the morning, that was when I was kind of more vulnerable. And that was when I would listen to it. I had long enough of a commute that I knew I knew how to time it so I could have that, have that cry, have that sadness, and then and then step away from it. Yeah, we've talked on the show before, Michelle, about having soundtracks for your life. Yes, music. And, and coming up with, I mean, I have playlists that I have, right? Oh, yeah. I, I, I literally have playlists that are specifically chosen because of the lyrics. There's no crap in them that that are gonna, you know, <laughs> feed my subconscious. And then I, I, I think as you're mentioning, Doctor, that I've got one playlist called The Hunt, and this is this is when I'm out doing something. And these are all songs specifically designed to 
kick you in the ass and move yeah. you forward. <laughs> I, I had my dissertation um, at that point. It was a CD, so I, I had burned a CD. <laughs> We're so, so old. I remember mixtapes. I heard you I rewinding, and, and twenty-three years yeah. ago, I fast forward. <laughs> yep. So I had I had my I had my burned CD for my dissertation, yes. and then I had different playlists. Yeah. for for different like so right now I have my motivation playlist so now I'm in this very happy part of my life so like my 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 lead song on that is uh golden by Jill Scott living my life like it's golden but I'll tell you when I was renegotiating my contract uh my theme song was bitch better have my money <laughs> <laughs> I mean bitch better have my money and then confident by Demi Lovato What's wrong with being confident? And I got to I got to tell the listeners, right? You know, I was a trial attorney for almost 40 years and my standard go-to before trial was to watch the movie 300. Yeah. yeah. Just be and it by the way, it didn't end well. Um it's like watching Titanic as a motivation, right? <laughs> but it it was that warrior spirit that you wanted to encompass, right? Come back with your yeah. shield or on it concept. Um when I when I played vol I lived in Cleveland, Ohio, and I would play volleyball in this town that was kind of um a, a little uh they were known for some race issues. Let's put it that way. That that was polite. <laughs> that but was a very polite very, way very of nice saying. Here. <laughs> very nice here. But when I would get in the mode to play volleyball and just like I want to sort of psych myself up, I would be playing Eminem. Like, like, and it kind of fit with the with the mentality of that town. So I would be I would listen to Eminem on my way on my drive in. I I think that that music and your your body language, yep. your physicality is absolutely important. Those are some of the other things that I would do. Um, and and I really do believe in the power of intention, and music I think is a, a very powerful tool for that. And people can relate. I have two more questions for you, being mindful of the time. The the first one we didn't plan on you talking about, which touches on your imposter experience mm -hmm. work. And I'm wondering, do you have a tip for living with imposter experience stress or decompressing from imposter experience stress? You know, okay, so I'll be honest. Yeah. Wait, I, I need I, to interrupt everybody here. Yeah. I've never heard this term before imposter experience like imposter syndrome oh i've heard of imposter syndrome i just but i think it's, it's a different word well the word syndrome implies medical and imposter phenomenon imposter experience is not a medical issue so it's not you can't diagnose for it you can't bill for it as a therapist so i'm with you michelle on saying imposter phenomenon or experience but feeling okay. like an imposter right got it okay I, um, I didn't know if we were talking about something different no All we're right. talking the same thing and so I lean on the other side. I lean on overconfidence, okay. but I, but I have had some imposter experiences. I had one in particular. I was speaking at a conference run by the National Institute of Health, ah. and I was um, on a panel, and then I'm listening to these scientists talk. And I, I have my PhD in psychology, but I'm not a scientist. I, I, uh -huh. I do a little research, but it is absolutely secondary, tertiary to my roles. And I was listening to these award-winning scientists speak, and I'm thinking, what am I doing here? <laughs> like, like, how did I get in? I, I didn't understand how I got here. And then on top of that, I had my handout, like I made a PowerPoint slide and it was like a bio. And I left on the bio, your name here. So, <laughs> so my name wasn't on it it was your my name here on it all my all my accomplishments were but i had a printout and it said your name here and i'm mortified oh my god and awesome. so scott's turning red for those that can't see him yeah oh, so, <laughs> oh so i feel for you i was uh lis listening to the talk I, I, and i'm and i'm on my cell phone and i we had just started using slack my my delp class my diversity executive class so we literally just got we met each other and we just the week earlier so i go on and i type oh my god i'm having this feeling of being an imposter here i'm sitting at this nih conference and i don't know what i'm doing here and one of them said dude you have a phd you absolutely belong there 
And that was what I needed. I just needed someone in my squad to lift mm-hmm. my head up. Lift your head up. And, and then I did humor, right? So in the presentation, someone actually said they had an error on a PowerPoint slide, but NIH has so much funding, they have someone to review the slides and make corrections. And so when we um, when we got when we got to my my panel, someone had corrected my slide, but I said I did not put my name in there. It still said your name here. So I want to thank the nameless person at NIH who added my name. Thank you very much. So I got wow. a laugh there, and wow. then I I kind of joked about my PhD advisor being as evil as Voldemort. Got another <laughs> laugh, and. And then once I was once I was there, then it was fine. I realized I was on the alternative careers panel. So I'm on the <laughs> if you don't want to be a scientist, here's some options. For you. <laughs> I can I can rock that panel. <laughs> but I, I didn't really it. understand my purpose there, and so I was like, oh, it was it was very overwhelming when to walk into this room of scientists and think, what am I going to say yes. to a bunch of scientists? But that text to a friend. And he just reminded me, you got this. That was I, what I, I've got to share something real quick because you guys will appreciate this in light of what you're saying. I was asked, in addition to my run at the castle, to do some fr- Friday lunch shows. These are for magician-only people. This is not oh. your normal audience. No. These are world-famous, world-class heroes of mine and i went through exactly dr nabil what you're talking about and it was i was talking to a very dear friend of mine uh who's also a member and i was saying i don't know what i'm doing here this is not me i i i can't do this you're gonna love this michelle he went and got me a a mirror and brought it to the dressing room yes and it's a little hand mirror and on it at the bottom is engraved, I'm fucking fantastic. Yay. What a good friend. That feels very Stuart Smalley. I'm good <laughs> yes. enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it. People like people me. like yeah. me. I'm fucking it, fantastic. It, it really <laughs> makes a difference to get that outside validate, yeah. right? It's yeah. it's just just knowing the mirror is there now becomes yeah. this little touch point. Yes. Um that but you know, what's interesting is the tone is really important too, because I don't think you would have liked a Stuart Smalley mirror that said, "I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and dog right, right. Like, well, well it, there's think, not for that moment. <laughs> so, do, do you guys know who Tom the the Tom Ford brand? Yeah. So this comes from one of the colognes that I wear, and one of the colognes from Tom Ford is fucking fucking fabulous. Yes, you're right. Ah. That's where that's where the whole thing comes from. Hey, there, I, 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 have tri- I have tried that. My Tom Ford is Arabian wood. It's been discontinued. Oh, see, mine is vanilla tobacco. <laughs> we I'm like the ouds. We like the ouds. I get it. I'm I, glad I, I hear you. <laughs> so in, in honor of your time and our time together, we have kind of a tradition of asking our guests um, a reflective question. And one of them you've kind of incorporated. One of them is, you know, when things go tough, how do you keep your shit together? You've given us great examples of that for our audience to take away. But this one is more reflective. So Dr. Neville, at the end of your life, how do you want to be remembered? That's a good question. I I want to be remembered as someone who is uh, loyal, who is funny, and who is smart. And so I hope the people in my life know that I have made a difference in theirs, that and that I've made them laugh. Like that's a that's a big value for me is bringing joy into people's lives. And so so uh, I, you know, I want to make people laugh and then and then I have thought about this. My goal, if I have enough money in my estate, is to leave my nieces and nephews enough money that they can take a trip. And so that they could have a memory courtesy of me, you know, so give them each $10,000 to go, or who knows what it'll be in 20, 30, 40 years, how much they'll need. But <laughs> give them money so they can, they can go on a trip to Europe or on a trip to, especially a place that I might've lived or visited and really loved and get something for that. So that bring them joy, bring them joy, bring them a smile. Very cool. Well, That's I want to so thank cool. you. We we have not met before, but it was a, it was really a, an honor 
having you on the show today and meeting you. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been a privilege. It's great to see, great to meet you, Scott. And then uh, always a pleasure seeing Michelle. Me too. Do you realize it was 30 years ago I left California to go to grad school? No, I, I have known you for 33. Th Dr. Nabil and I met on peer support helpline at UCLA when we were in our early, wow. late teens, early 20s. I mean, this is, oh. you know, it's such an honor to have you in my life for such a long period of time and to just, you, you definitely bring me joy. So thank you so much and laughter. All right, with, the, with that, um, thank you all for listening. Uh, please remember to like, subscribe, and share us on your favorite podcast platform. Uh, we will have the replay for this up so you can listen to Dr. Nabil. And again, uh, doctor, how can they get you if they want to get a hold of you? Um, the best place is my website, www.executivetherapy.solutions with an S. And then my email is nabil, N-A-B-I-L, at executivetherapy.solutions. And on socials, I am on, on Twitter and Instagram. I am at Dr. Nabil. Wonderful. Um, next week, we are going to be live again, and we will be addressing the value of fair play, mm -hmm. which ought to be an interesting discussion, Michelle, you and I, because I think we may have a different approach to that, you and I. <laughs> we might. <laughs> all right. With that, thank you all for being here. Until next week, be well. Thank Bye -bye. you. Thank you. Bye-bye. You've reached the end of another episode of Keeping Your Together in a Stressed World with Michelle Post and Scott Grossberg. If you like our show, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate our broadcast, and leave a review. The podcast is for general information only and not intended to be legal or mental health advice, nor the formation of a lawyer-client, nor therapist-patient relationship. Stay tuned for our next episode, and thank you for listening.